Welcome to Beneath the Surface B-Sides, where we bring you full interviews with infrastructure experts. If you listened to the first episode of this podcast, you heard excerpts from my interview with Juan Du. She's the Dean of the Daniels Faculty of Architecture, Landscape, and Design at the University of Toronto, and the author of The Shenzhen Experiment, the story of China's instant city. In our conversation, she offers insights into Shenzhen's history, explains the personal connection to the city that inspired her to spend 15 years writing a book about it, and reveals why she thinks the Shenzhen experiment, as she calls it, is far from over. So without further ado, here is a lightly edited version of my conversation with Dean Juan Du. So we'll start with the hardest question first. Tell me your name, your academic affiliations, and why I'm talking to you right now. The why, I'm not sure if I can tell you, but... <laughs> so, hello, my name is Joanne Du. Uh, I am the Dean of the Daniels Faculty of Architecture, Landscape, and Design at the University of Toronto in Canada. And I recently relocated uh, in the last six months from Hong Kong to Toronto. So it's nice to be speaking with you. And tell me, so you're an architect by trade. I would love if you could tell me a little bit about your background. How did you end up writing this book? Because, you know, certainly Shenzhen's architecture is mentioned. That isn't really the defining feature of, of the book. And maybe you could tell folks what the name of your book is as well. Sure. So the book is called The Shenzhen Experiment, The Story of China's Instant City. And the book, as it was published, is probably the fifth evolution of it or reincarnations of it. it. I didn't start out by writing such a book because I am trained in architecture and I started out to write a more architectural book about the city and specifically about the urban villages of the city. However, as I started to uncover more and more about the urban villages, I discovered a larger story, really the story of the city and the story of China. It is a story that I think is very misunderstood. It essentially is the story of China in the last 40 years and how that is contextualized within a broader understanding of the history of China, perhaps over a few centuries. So it just became a much bigger book, perhaps not in length, but in scope, the more I researched and, and worked on that. One of the first reasons why I wanted to write the book is actually based in my first-hand experience of planning and design projects in Shenzhen. And came across deep history and vibrant overlooked urban neighborhoods that is not present in the way that Shenzhen is typically portrayed in either national media in China and especially in international media in the world. It's usually portrayed as the city without history, the city without any important pre-urbanization culture or people of significance. And that was just very much contrary to what my own experiences and, my, and later my own research uncovered. 
So this is why I decided to take on this challenge of writing this book. And it was very difficult for me precisely because I wasn't trained particularly to write such an expansive book, but it was very much a learning journey. And with these knowledge and lessons I've uncovered over a decade of research and writing, I think it does contribute back to my own discipline of architecture and urban planning and design. But also, I hope it contribute to others who are interested in economics, politics, geography, you know, environmental transformation, whether it is in the Chinese context or anywhere else in the world. For anyone who isn't familiar, what is Shenzhen? Where is it? And maybe you can answer this now, or I can ask it again in just a little bit. Why is Shenzhen such a significant city? Sure. I'll start with the where first, maybe. So Shenzhen is located in southern China. It's at the southern eastmost tip of China, just north of the river from Hong Kong. And the river is called the Shenzhen River. And this river is the border between the city of Shenzhen and the city of Hong Kong. And it used to also be an international border that, you know, defined between China and colonial era Hong Kong, which was ruled by the British. So it is a very interesting location. I would also say that what's unique geographical feature, in addition to where it's located is the people via one fact. It is the only city in China's southern region where the primary dialogue is not Cantonese, which is the southern dialogue of China. The primary dialogue in Shenzhen is Mandarin, which is a typically northern dialogue that that people have used to speak everywhere in China. So this is not to say that Shenzhen is a northern city, but it really testifies to the cosmopolitan nature of the city, that it is located in the southern tip and has a very rich southern history of China. But it is a city of migrants from all across China. And it's really, I would say, the most diverse city in China in terms of the backgrounds of people and where they're from geographically and perhaps also socioeconomically. I think that for me is what makes it a significant city. And I would say that it also makes Shenzhen the most dynamic city in China today because of that mixture, because of that diversity. And it has this extreme mixture of low-tech and high-tech industries. It has this extreme mixture of urban and rural cultures. It has this extreme mixture of kind of the, the very local regional quality of a southern city with international enterprises and international headquarters via where it is and its unique history. It's also significant if we want to speak about numbers. It's also significant in terms of its population number. It is a city of 20 million people, which makes it a rare mega city in the world, 20 million. But what makes it more unique is that in the 1970s, the population in Shenzhen was 300,000. So it went from 300,000 to 10 million in two decades. And then when it was 10 million in the early 2000s, everyone said, well, this is it. This must be it. I mean, Shenzhen has reached its potential. It's no longer unique. 
It's no longer special. Yet, over the following decade and two decades, it continued to grow into where it is today, a city 20 million people. And that makes it a internationally significant city because that type of population growth, not only is it unprecedented in China, it's unprecedented in the world, anywhere, at any moment of history in, in the world. I really appreciate that because you just flagged Shenzhen's population in the 70s. I'm going to come back and ask you a question about that because when I was working at the Charter Cities Institute, I was under the impression that the, the population was actually 30,000, but there's a very particular reason why you use the 300,000 number. Yeah. But there are a lot of people who speak as though Shenzhen's history began in 1979. Why was 1979 such a significant year for China more broadly? Right. So 1979 is a very significant year for both Shenzhen and China. In 1979 was the year the city of Shenzhen was established, meaning it was formally designated as an urban unit. So prior to 1979, the region was called Baoan County, which was a rural county in the province of Guangdong. So in 1979, it was designated on this special entity as a city of Shenzhen. But the further significance of 1979 to both Shenzhen and China is because 1979 was the year China, via the central government in Beijing, launched China's reform and opening. It was basically the beginning of a series of economic and social political reforms that entirely pivoted China's economy and culture onto the world stage and into the identity of what China is today internationally. I think for anyone who perhaps do not have that particular memory or anyone who's younger than 50, I would imagine that they would be very shocked if they're shown images or facts about what China was like in the 1960s and 70s, including anyone who's younger 50 in China today. The year 1979 to launch, it was a very pivotal moment and pivotal year. It's not to say everything was instant. 1979 launched the reform and opening, 1979 established the city of Shenzhen, but the first decade of that was very rocky. It was very difficult. It was very challenging. Shenzhen was very close to being shut down multiple times. Reform opening policies was close to shut down multiple times. It wasn't until the mid-1990s, right, almost two decades after 1979, did it stabilize and the country and the city had enough confidence that this is definitely the right direction for the city and for the country. And for anybody who, who doesn't already know, how did allowing Shenzhen, designating it as a special economic zone, change the city? I mean, you've alluded now to population growth. I'm also curious about GDP growth and more broadly, how Shenzhen's success really impacted the whole country. In 1979, what was initiated was not only the city of Shenzhen. There also was initiated a policy to create special economic zones. And in 1979, Shenzhen was one of four special economic zones that was created. 
So what makes Shenzhen's beginning as a city unique is that within that year, it was both a city and a special economic zone in China. There are many conversations about special economic zones. It continued to be used almost like a miracle growth formula in the world today, especially in developing economies and cities. What it meant for China at that time, for Shenzhen at that time, by special economic zone, it simply meant that within the designated special economic zone of Shenzhen, which was only actually the southern half of the city of Shenzhen, but within that special economic zone, that the zone and the city government had the power to create an experiment with various policies and various mechanisms that was not legal, that was not allowed and not existent outside of the zone. And I also think social political reforms and policies that were experimented with that at the time was not possible anywhere else in China. Uh, for example, at that time, the, if you were not born in a particular city and had its local residency status, which is called hukou in China, you cannot legally work in anywhere but that city. You cannot get a job. You cannot get housing, cannot get married anywhere else but that city. It was very much a mechanism of economic and population uh, management system in China, let's say, uh, as that it was a planned economy. But because Shenzhen was designated as a special economic zone, in Shenzhen, if you were a migrant from somewhere else, from another city, from a rural region, from a village, you could get a job. You could go to school. You could rent a home. You could get married. You could make so many decisions about your own life that at the time in China, you couldn't. And that's why it was significant. And I would say that's what attracted people to go there. So what makes it unique? It's not only the number and the population growth. I think the question is like, why? You know, the question is, why did all these people go there? That's one of the biggest, I think, overlooked lessons. Shenzhen, as it's being discussed either as a charter city precedent or model, or as a special economic zone model, I think it's important to keep in mind is that what accounted for Shenzhen's rapid population growth wasn't necessarily just top-down policy. It was a bottom-up willingness is that people wanted to go there. People were not forced to go there. People were not sent to go there. People left the comfort of their home. People left the comfort of their jobs and their families to go to, at the time, you know, I, I said the first decade was very difficult for Shenzhen, but people left the comfort of their home and under a planned economy, if you had a job, you had that job for life. It may not be a job you love, but you had it. You had housing, you had a job, you had your basic social networks. Within those first decade, the type of people that the city attracted with a very unique type of people. It was people who was more adventurous, it was people who was entrepreneurial, it was people who are not satisfied with what life offered them in wherever they were. So what makes Shenzhen a really interesting case study for me is a much more closer understanding of what propels people, what, what would attract someone 
whichever you know place or whichever socioeconomic class you're coming from, what would attract someone to leave everything they they know and go to this place, you know, and and believe that it is a land and opportunity, and to the testament of Shenzhen, even though there has been, of course, many people who arrived in Shenzhen and couldn't make it and left, but many more did stay. Right, the fact that. It started with the population three hundred thousand. Now it's twenty million. We're basically talking about twenty million migrants, twenty million people,、uh, because it's only within four decades, right? New population growth. Those who were born in Shenzhen is still not the majority of the twenty million. The majority of the twenty million are migrants from everywhere else. They went to Shenzhen and they were able to. Uh, despite whatever challenges of a new environment, changing policy, they were able to take root and take advantage of the various、um, unique opportunities that the city have offered, and was able to make their homes there. You went to Shenzhen, I believe, in two thousand five. I love that the book kind of starts and ends in the same place. Forgive me if I say this wrong. In Baishu, what did you see where you first got to Shenzhen, and why is that specific village so so significant to you? I did use Baishuzhou, a particular urban village, as a historical site and device to open the book and end the book, and there are. Personal reasons, and I think for me also intellectual reasons to want to do that. Personal reasons is that in 2005 I was working in Beijing at the time, and I was flying to Shenzhen to work. And I would fly to Shenzhen once every week or every every two weeks. I fly in in the morning and I leave in the last flight out. Because why would I want to stay in Shenzhen? It's a city with no history, no culture. I'm only going there on business. And then one day, my meeting ran over.、Um, the city official, the urban planner that I became very good friends with decades later, was driving a bit too slow going to the airport, and I missed my flight. The city put me up in a hotel. A place called Overseas Chinese Town (OCT), which is the nicest neighborhood in Shenzhen. It has these kind of Italian villas. It has a very famous theme park. It has these tree-lined streets and some business hotels. So I was put there to stay for the night and take my first flight out the next morning. And in the hotel room, I couldn't sleep. So I thought maybe a walk would do it. So I started walking and. Got lost and walked into this incredible scene. This was probably past midnight already. A city square with everyone full of people at midnight, full of people cooking and eating in this outdoor market. Lots of kids running around, and I described the scene. I think in my book. Rather cinematically, but it was a very cinematic experience. It was as if I discovered this new world that no one had told me about. None of the architects and planners and government officials I had met at that time in Shenzhen, because I was just starting to understand the city, has ever mentioned such a place of urban villages. None of what I've read about the city have talked about it, so it was just this incredible thing. And then later, I would to understand that Baishuzhou is the city's largest and most populous 
urban village. It has this incredible history that I speak about in the book, I think in, in one of the chapters. And I did decide to end, uh, I believe it was the last chapter on Baishijo as well, to in some ways to talk about what started out as a very touristic understanding um, the urban village is and what the, the city is. But after you know a decade and a half of researching and interacting and learning from the local residents and the, the local scholars, I start to really have a much deeper understanding. However, by at the end of, you know, the, the end of say the, the 15 years, by Shizhou was in the process of being cleared out for demolition. So I really wanted to be able to include that part in the book to really put in some ways a sense of urgency to what I wanted to call out to attention of both the people in Shenzhen, people in China, people everywhere else, is that very often what's happening through an urbanization process of so-called urban renewal, what we're demolishing, which on the surface might cosmetically look as if it shouldn't be there, that in fact is the very heart and engine of what made that city vibrant and important in the first place. And that for me, I think, has a certain degree of urgency uh, and has um, a degree of importance to be able to share with an international audience. Your book does, I think, a masterful job of pointing out many misconceptions that people have about Shenzhen, whether it's that Shenzhen's success should primarily be attributed to top-down government, to the idea that Shenzhen, before the city kind of grew to become what we know it to be today, had no one there, and it was just kind of this like backwoods village, and the land was pretty insignificant. So I'm wondering if you could tell me, what are maybe some of the most jarring misconceptions that people have about Shenzhen? And why was it so important to you to kind of take pains to correct them? The reason why it's important for me to put that front and center is because I had those very same misperceptions and misconceptions of the city when I started first going there. But what's different between myself and perhaps the greater media press is that my misconceptions conceptions are very quickly dispelled by me understanding the city more, but then is to watch that those misconceptions not only did it stay throughout the decade and a half I was researching and writing the book, they actually grew, <laughs> that it grew in it, their status and it grew in the number of people who help them you know it was primarily first just kind of a national the national discussion and then became an international Shenzhen became an international model city and with Shenzhen's reputation rising in the last decade the misconceptions also arose in their importance and impact. So I thought it was really important to outline that and to say that this is why I'm writing the book is I wanted people to have an understanding that not only is Shenzhen not the way that is commonly being perceived, in fact, it is the exact opposite. That's what I think is really intriguing and unfortunate to me about these misconceptions of Shenzhen. And there's many, but I think for the purpose for the book and for the purpose of me uh, trying to create it more succinctly and communicate them, I had outlined that there was misconception of time, which uh, misconception of people, misconceptions of purpose. 
So misconceptions of time is that we spoke about the fact that Shenzhen was established as a city in 1979. And for the most part, we've been speaking about the city's growth in the past four decades and how that paralleled or instigated actually the growth of China in terms of economics in the past four decades. However, if you have read my book, you will understand that in the book, I take pains to research and, and create an evidence to show that the centuries of history prior to 1979 is as important as the history of the last four decades. And that if we did not understand what had happened in Shenzhen, in the region, in China prior to 1979, there could be no understanding of why Shenzhen was created, why there was this special economic zone, why China launched the reform opening. And most importantly, I think I wanted to evidence, and I hope it was compelling to anyone who has read the book, that the incredible urbanization and economic growth in Shenzhen in the past four decades absolutely was built up on foundations that was already pre-existent in the region. And, and those foundations took decades, if not millennium, to be built. And that if Shenzhen was what people think it was in 1979, and this is where the misconception of place is also one of the misconceptions, is that people think that in 1979, it was just a small sleeping fishing village of 30,000. First of all, there are no villages that has 30,000, especially a sleepy one and small one at that. But Shenzhen was not a small sleeping fishing village. Even if we don't look at the, the population statistics, Shenzhen was a conglomerate of 2,000 villages and several historic townships that existed for centuries. And it, this is really important to understand the region and this particular place, the people, the geography, the fact that it was a port, the fact that it had these rivers, the fact that it had all of these land that, that was cultivated. So that geographic understanding is really important because the misconception that Shenzhen grew from scratch, that it was a blank slate or tabula rasa is I think the most dangerous misconception that one can take zero, one can take a blank sheet of paper and that all you need to do is add money and policy that you can have a city. So I think that really is the biggest and most dangerous misconception of Shenzhen because that's not how it happened. And the reason why I say it's the most dangerous misconception is that Shenzhen now has been used as a model city in the context of charter cities, in the context of new cities, in the context of special economic zones to demonstrate that it's not only is it possible to brew a city from blank, to plan a city from nothing, and all you have to do is add you know, foreign direct investment. It not only is that not that, it's the opposite of that. It's just, there was so much local indigenous knowledge and organizations and economies and local networks and international networks of those local indigenous villages that formed 
and actually allowed Shenzhen to survive its most difficult startup period at the first five years or the first 10 years. And, and this is really something that I'm very passionate about to advocate uh, because I believe in the importance of cities. I believe in, I even believe in uh, charter cities as something that's important to talk about. I believe that we can make new cities and make it livable and attractive. But we also need to understand that it's not just add money or just add policy. There is no miracle growth <laughs> in this way that it is, you know, city making. It's a very, very complex and difficult process. And if my study of Shenzhen hopefully can evidence is that it's really important to understand that pre-existing geography of people, history, culture of that place, and that we should see those existing geographies not as something to get rid of, not as an inconvenience, not as a nuisance, but really see them as the key ingredient the, the seeds, if you will, that can contribute to the success of the future new city or the future new charter city. I think a lesser understood part of Shenzhen's kind of contribution to the world, its cultural contributions. You know, there's a music video that you reference. This is around the time that you're starting to get, you know, the first music videos coming out of China. And these music videos are being shot literally as the city is being constructed. And one thing you, you've taken quite a lot of care to, to sort of show, not tell people about, um, whether it's in your book or in your, your appearances since then, is the real spirit of the people in Shenzhen. Yeah, I think in the book I cite one evidence. The first master plan of Shenzhen was based on a anticipation of a population 1 million by 2010. By all counts, that was a very ambitious master plan. There are not many cities that was able to go from scratch to 1 million. That is already a very ambitious plan, top-down planning. Many cities who's been planned to have city 1 million did not have any, right? <laughs> there are many ghost towns, whether in China or elsewhere. More top-down planned cities fail than succeed. So the top-down planning from policy, from resources, infrastructure, housing, central funding, what have you, anticipated population of 1 million by 2010. The actual population in 2010 in Shenzhen was 10 million, 10 times more than what was planned via policy and the various instruments of that, whether economic or spatial. So 90% was unanticipated bottom up, right? 90% was just people wanted to go there. And this is where uh, the importance of the urban village I was speaking about earlier, because the city was planned with its infrastructure, whether it's housing, schools, hospitals, restaurants, <laughs> To, to serve a particular proportion of the population. Who made up for the 90%? The local communities, the local villages. They built, they turned their own houses into rental housing. Uh, and then once they had rental housing, the new migrants opened up restaurants. So what's interesting about Bai Shizhou is that you can walk into any street in Bai Shizhou and you can, within one hour, sample food from all over China because they're all opened by migrants from all over China. 
So this is what I mean by that. I think we have underestimated the powers of bottom-up action and bottom-up growth. And because the book is intended for a general intellectual audience, I do not put too much academic or theoretical terms in there. But that aligns with my own work uh, in understanding informal urbanization, informal sediments. And to understand how communities build their own housing, build their own economy, build their own social network and social systems. And I've come to really understand that for a city to be a healthy, vibrant, expanding city, you need both formal or top-down policy and planning and governance. It's not just that's not important. It's very important. Without that 10%, right? Without that top-down, there would have been no Shenzhen. But this other part, the informal growth, the informal settlements, kind of these informal networks that very much is tied into and contributed to that formal economy, that formal policy, you need that. Without the informal and the bottom up, there would be no Shenzhen as we understand it today. And we would not be speaking about it. And I would not have written a book and it would not be cited in India and Africa, Honduras. Ireland, wherever it is around the world as a model city, right? Because, you know, that that top-down aspect, that kind of planning aspect is actually quite standard, but it's this kind of how these policies, when emerged with the local population of the pre-existing villages and when emerged with all of these people from all around the country coming into this one city, and all collectively believing in the possibility of the new. That is an, an incredible, I think, a social and psychological experiment. So, you know, I go back to why I call my book The Shenzhen Experiment is because I think that it is very much an experimental city. It was set up as an experiment for China to experiment with, can you have market economy in a communist country? But I think its significance go way beyond that. It's an experimental city and understand human nature. It's an experiment understanding both the incredible opportunities of urbanization and rapid growth, but also the negative impacts on the environment, on the geography of rapid urbanization. Uh, the, the fact that it's the state of where it is today of being, say, a mega city of between 10 million to 20 million people. It's only in the last two decades. That makes it one of the world's youngest cities and newest experiments. Um, I, I think in the conclusion of my book, I said, I think the Shenzhen experiment is far from over. So I am always very uncomfortable, even myself, to make any very declarative or conclusive comments about Shenzhen, uh, because I think we don't really understand it yet. You know, despite the fact that I've spent peace time researching into it and reading everything I can about Shenzhen and Southern China, I think there's still so many more we don't know about the city. We, there's so much more lessons to uncover. So I think, you know, this experiment continues and where the city is today and where it's going to go, it's an open question. It's an absolute open question. So for me is that there's so much for us to learn about the city 
and the knowledge and experience of the city to benefit both cities and governors and also individuals in China, in Asia. But also, I think there's a lot of lessons to offer to people from all around the world, whether they're decision makers or they're, they're citizens themselves. In the book, I do highlight a number of individuals I have met. Um, some of them are historical figures and some of them are common everyday people and how their own lives were impacted by the urbanization of the city. But also I wanted to show how they as individuals contributed to the city and ultimately shaped the city. And one thing I always like to remind myself and remind everyone else that, you know, 20 million sounds like a monolith block. It's very common for when, especially in the American context, when we look at Chinese cities or when we look at China, we see these huge gigantic numbers. And that just automatically turns apart your brain into thinking that it's monolith. But I do want to highlight that it's 20 million of individuals and it's 20 million individuals, not unlike you and I. It's 20 million individuals who have their strengths and weaknesses, to have their own neuroses, who have their emotional baggage. And these individuals, whether they're mayors or they're construction workers, they have had and continue to have influences in shaping the city. And, and that's whether it's in Shenzhen or el elsewhere. And that ultimately is something that I really would like for, especially the English reading audience, and especially the North American audience, to have a more humanistic understanding of Shenzhen, to have a more humanistic understanding of China, to have a more humanistic understanding of cities, that in one country, in one city, there are so many diverse views and so many different diverse entities, and that individuals, nationalities, places of residence should not be grouped in within one overarching understanding about one particular country. Imagine if that be the case in the reverse, right? Do we as individuals want to be defined by the overall message that came out of the U.S. in the past five years? Would think not. So in the same way, I would also ask everyone to have the curiosity to try to understand whether it's China or India or Africa or France to understand the nuances of these political situations and to understand the difference between national politics and individual rights and individual dreams. Beneath the Surface is a production of Stripe Press. The senior producers for this series are myself and Everett Kadigback. This episode was produced by Jack Rossiter-Munley. Whitney Chen was our production manager. Our associate producer and editor for this episode was Astrid Landon. Our sound mixer and sound designer was Jim McKee. Original music for this episode was composed by Arabus. To learn more about Stripe Press, our books, our films, and more, visit press.stripe.com. All right, that's it for this B-Side. I've been your host, Tamara Winter. This is Beneath the Surface. B-Sides. <laughs>